All right, if you can find your uh, conclusions, and I'm going to find our seats here in a minute. If you take your Bibles, turn to Jonah. I always hate to interrupt people praying together, but uh, we need to move to the next level here. So, Jonah, and we're in chapter 3, down just a little bit. We've been looking at the the story of Jonah, and we've uh, come to the point where Jonah has preached, and Nineveh repented um, and cried out to God. We saw last week the actions of the king and the actions of the subjects. The king we talked about changed where he sat and what he wore. He moved from his throne, and the Bible says he sat in, in, in ashes, and which is a, a big move of humility for a king. And then he also changed his clothes from uh, his kingly attire to sackcloth. And, uh, and then, and only then, after he did that himself, did he direct his kingdom to repent. It's a good lesson because before uh, a king or any leader has a right to expect it of those under him, he needs to make sure he's right himself, and he did so. The Ninevites' cry of repentance brings about a unique request, and I want to look at it in Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse number 8. This was their decree, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. Uh, Before I go on, I just want to make mention, because I will forget, um, we are doing the ladies' Bible study one week later, so we're not doing it this Saturday. Um, if you come to our house now, you might die. It's a sick house. So uh, if you come, we'll do it one week delayed. Oh, it's always the first Saturday of the month, but um, this one, it'll be different. So just my wife wanted me to make that mention to you. So interesting here that three groups of people repented. The king repented, the people repented, and then they asked God to repent. And that brings a question that I'd like to discuss tonight. Does God repent? And that's what I want to look at. Father, I pray you'd use us uh, this evening, use your word to speak to us in a special way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, does God repent? And then, will God repent? That's what the question they asked. Now, what does this mean? Is this really a thing, God repenting? The Bible says in Malachi 3.6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Okay? And yet here, it says that God repented of the evil that he was going to do to the people. Now, we're going to look at our text and some other other places in scriptures, because I want to answer the question tonight, does God repent? When you get, when you leave, if my voice tarries and doesn't crack and break like it's been, uh, we'll know the answer to this question, hopefully. So let's ask, let's uh, look at that. Does God repent? The answer in short, yes, God does repent. Look at verse number 10. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented. So how do we know God repents? Because the Bible says, and God repented. Okay, so that's the short answer. But I want to explain a little deeper than that. (coughs) Because discovering that God repents creates two apparent problems in Scripture. First, 
it seems to condemn God's conduct like he was wrong. Is God ever wrong? Never. He's God. But the fact that he's repenting might seem like he was wrong. Second, it seems to contradict the immutability, immutable nature of God. That means the unchanging nature of God by saying that he's changeable. But I want to show you these two are not a problem at all. So let's break them down. Let's look first at the condemnation problem. Uh, there's a number of scriptures that speak of God repenting. For example, in the days before the flood, uh, he created man. They became, of course, there was a fall. And then man became exceedingly wicked, the Bible says. And then it says in Genesis 6, 6, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. Concerning Saul later, uh, we have just went through King Saul's life in uh, the Old Testament, and God said this about him, it repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. That's 1 Samuel fifteen eleven. Yet at the same time, Scripture plainly teaches that God changes not. God is not a man that he should lie, the Bible says, Numbers 33, uh, 23, 19. Neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Wait a second. So we've just seen like three scriptures where it says, and God repented. And then here in, in Numbers it says, God is not a man that he should lie, and nor he's the Son of Man that he should repent. So God doesn't have to repent, but yet it says God repented. Now, Bible critics have made much of these apparent contradictions in the Bible. And I say apparent because they're not, if you just dig a little bit. Uh, whenever you see a contradiction in the Bible, um, you can assure, be assured of one thing. You're not understanding the context, you're not understanding the verse, or something because the Bible never contradicts itself. Uh, when we speak of repentance, we normally think of a sinner repenting, Right? Each one of us, the Bible says, except a man repent, he shall in no wise see the kingdom of heaven. So every one of us, if we're a child of God, at some point in our life, we repented of our sin. We recognized, I'm a sinner, I need to repent of that sin, change my mind about my sin, and uh, accept Christ's payment on my behalf. So we generally associate repentance with sin. So it often can be confusing when we look at, at some place that it talks about God repenting. Now, what we do know for certain, I think we can all agree on, God is not sinful. He is not a sinner. He does not do wrong, ever. He makes no mistakes. Uh, he does not need to repent. So then why does he repent if he is not sinful? The answer is that repentance is not only turning from uh, sinful conduct. That's not the only thing that the word means. Repentance is simply changing one's attitude or actions. So, you're a sinner you're living for self, you're chasing after sin. The Bible says in, in Romans 6 that we were a slave to sin. And then there comes a time in your life where you change your mind. You realize this sin is not acceptable. This sin is against God. This sin will send me to hell. And so I'm changing my mind about this sin. I'm going to change direction. And now I'm not following sin anymore. I'm following Christ. That repentance is what leads to salvation. Okay? So that it's turning another direction. Now, look at verse 9. Nineveh asked if God would turn and repent. And that's what he's talking about, changing God's direction from judgment to mercy. Verse 10 says, God saw that they turned from their evil way and God repented. They, this is important. They turned, so God repented. They repented, so God repented. 
they changed their attitude and their actions concerning their sin, and so God changed His attitude and action concerning the judgment for their sin. Uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we read it every time we do communion, that if a man judge himself, he should not be judged. Uh, because if we recognize our sin and we repent from that sin, then no longer is judgment necessary for it because Jesus Christ paid the price. So, precisely because God does not repent concerning evil, is uh, we see his actions change toward man when man truly repents, repent, uh, repents of his sin. So, this human repentance, by the way, can go either direction. You can repent of living good and start living evil. That's just a change of direction. That's what repentance is. It's a change of attitude and direction. Now, God responds accordingly since he cannot change his mind concerning evil. Uh, this is not a theological position that assumes that God somehow messed up along the way. God was judging the Ninevites because they were wicked, evil people, and they had it coming. They repented, changed their mind about their sin, repented of their sin, begged God for mercy, and so he changed, uh, the, he, he turned, turned his judgment away from them. So here's the common denominator. When God repents, it's always, always, always the actions of man that causes it. It's, it's, uh, God's plans are always perfect. Now, your plans are not, and my plans are not. That's why we have a thing called plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. God just, his plan is perfect. But we have to have a plan B, sometimes a plan C, sometimes a plan D, okay? Because this doesn't work, so we try that. That doesn't work, we try this. Our plans are not perfect. God's plans are. So when he repents of his plans, it is our fault, not his. Uh, it is only when we're thrown in the mix that uh, all things change. So repentance in God is not so much a change in mind as it is a change in method and what he has to do to deal with how we respond. The change was in Saul that made God repent of making him king. It wasn't God's fault that Saul sinned. And what he said is, he is turned back from following me. So because he repented, change of mind, change of heart, change of direction, because he turned back and he started going the wrong direction in his life, God said because of his actions, I now repent that I ever made him king in the first place. Because he now made God his enemy. <coughs> in the Hebrew word, it's interesting for repent in our text, it means to be sorry, to be moved to pity, and to have compassion. In the case of the Ninevites, they had sorrow in their repentance and remorse over their sin. But God has no sin to sorrow over. So his repentance involved pity and compassion for Nineveh. To repent does not necessarily mean that you have sinned. It simply means you're changing your attitude and actions about something. For God to repent does not mean that God is sinful. He just changes what he is, what he had previously had in place. For, uh, it simply means that God's changing his actions towards something or someone. In this case, it was the Ninevites. He had planned judgment because that's what, uh, was in response to their wickedness. But after Nineveh repented, this is what it says in verse 10. He said that he would do unto them uh, what he said he would do unto them. He did it not. God repents, but he never repents as a sinner because he has no sin. Now, 
Okay, you say that's all fine and good, but look at what the Bible says in our text here. It seems to look like God was sinful here when it says God repented of the evil that he had said he would do. But the word evil here is used in the sense of adversity, not sin. The evil, the judgment that they had coming, all right? Who here likes judgment? Say, I like judgment. If there's a sign-up sheet for judgment, put my name down. No, we don't like judgment. That's evil. That's unpleasant in our life. And that's what, simply what this is talking about. So the adversity, <coughs> uh, the, the word evil here then is used in the sense of adversity, not sin. The adversity was the judgment. Again, when God repents, it's the actions of man that causes it. That's the condemnation problem. Let's look at the contradiction problem. The fact that God is immutable means that God does not change. The scriptures teach this plainly all throughout. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 6.17 talks about the immutability of his counsel, the unchangeableness, if you want to use that word. Uh, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how do we explain this apparent seeming contradiction that God repents, yet he does not change? Samuel Burns, in his book, explains this contradiction this way. He says, God is unchangeably changeable. Now, then he gives two illustrations to illustrate it. I think this is a good way of looking at it. He points to the thermometer. The thermometer changes. Hasn't it changed wonderfully the last few days? It's a blessing. I called my dad today uh, because I had to inform him we were one degree warmer than it was in Missouri. And I love calling him in February to tell him that. It ruined his day, and it was just wonderful. Um, so, but the, what does the thermometer do? It changes with the temperature. Yet the thermometer is absolutely unchangeable in that it always indicates the temperature that is there. So, in other words, the action of the in instrument is invariable in its character, Yet the action involves change in itself because it follows the temperature. So the second thing he points to the tide. The tide is a changeable thing. Now ebbing, then flowing. But the tide is also an unchangeable thing for its ebb and flow are so regular that they can be anticipated with the utmost confidence months or even years beforehand. And this is what it's like with God's repenting and immutability. He changes his attitudes and actions toward man's response, uh, or in response, I'm sorry, to man's attitude and actions toward God. How we respond to God will tell how he responds to us. God always frowns on evil. He always smiles on holiness. That's unchangeable. That doesn't, but if so if we live evil, he is, uh, he deals with us in one way. Uh, he says, if, if the Bible says in Hebrews that if he does not chastise us, then we're bastards, not sons. And so he has to deal with sin. Um, and <clears throat> yet, in 1 Corinthians, it says that if we judge ourselves, then we will not be judged. See, And so it, it all depends on how we uh, act concerning our sin. So there's no contradiction with God's immutability and in God's repenting. In fact, if God did not repent, it would contradict his immutability. Because... Uh, they repented, and what does God do when we repent? He forgives. Uh, he has grace, just like when we're sinners, and we're on our way to hell because of our sin, and then we come to Christ, 
and we repent of our sin and we ask his forgiveness, now we are no longer on the way to hell. Is that, now God said we're going to hell, now we're not, so he's changing. No, no, we changed. We made the choice. We made the, the decision. So, does God repent? There's the answer to that question. Yes, he does. Second question, will God repent? That was the question they had. They were not certain whether he would or not. <coughs> Verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? They had the sign of Jonah. Remember we talked about that last week? Uh, I believe they knew the story about Jonah and the whale that had probably traveled like wildfire. Uh, it was all over Facebook and Twitter and all that back in that day. So uh, everybody would know about that. But it certainly wasn't a sure thing that God would uh, withhold judgment. That's where the promises of Scripture are so wonderful for us today. We have the Word of God. They did not. We have the Word of God. And we have promises like 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but is long-suffering toward us, that not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. The great truth of the gospel itself is that God will repent so that if we call on him for salvation, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, Acts 13, uh, 16, 31. So though Nineveh was uncertain if God would repent or not, it's to their credit they still called on him. And how thankful we can be today to walk in the light of the gospel that from the word of God. We can know with a certainty that God will forgive sins. 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. What a blessing that is. What peace and joy that can bring to a repenting soul. Now, here's the question for us. This is where we bring it home and make it practical for us. Am I performing, per performing God's plan for my life? Wouldn't it be tragic if God had to change his plans because of you, because of a choice you made, how you live your life, how I live my life, and God would have to repent of a plan that he made. If he does, it's not any fault of his. God's plans are always perfect. We just get in the way. Uh, let's consider again Saul's life as an example. First uh, Samuel 8, 6, Israel demanded a king. Remember that story? And, and uh, God said, finally, he gave them their, uh, their, their desire. The Bible says that he... In Psalms, he gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. And so he gave them what they wanted. And Saul was God's choice. He's the one that God chose. And he was the perfect example of what they wanted in a king. Just like me, tall, dark, handsome. He had it all, okay? So he was the perfect picture of what they wanted. First Samuel 10, 24. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. Saul was brought before the people. He was timid. Uh, he, he, in fact, he asked, who am I? Who is my family? I don't deserve this. Uh, he was, uh, I, I wonder if he was the perfect picture of a king, but I wonder if God was not, uh, in, it wasn't in his purpose to show them the best, to show that nothing's going to replace him leading them. In 1 Samuel 11, Saul became the hero, taking out the Ammonites. Chapter 12 is an, Awesome chapter because Samuel steps off the political scene. People then recognize their evil in asking for a king. Now it hits home. Oh, my soul, what have we done in demanding a king? They told Samuel, Samuel, we've done wicked. Now, of course, it was too late. Once you got a king, it's hard to unking a king. Okay, they already had him now. 
And now they write, oh, we messed up. We asked for a king. That was wicked on our behalf. And it's a wonderful example, chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, of God's mercy and grace, because he basically says, I know you've done this evil, and if you serve God, I'll still be your God. You'll still be my people. Oh, I love that passage. 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. We mess up. We fail. God is still our God. He still blesses. What a blessing that is. Chapter 13 is where Saul disobeyed God, undermined Samuel, and offered up a sacrifice when he shouldn't have. Chapter 15, Samuel specifically ordered him to destroy the Ammonites and all their animals. Uh, he showed up afterward, and Saul's like, Hey, welcome to the party. I have done as the Lord has commanded. And then in the back, you hear the sheep and the goats, bah! and he's like, What's this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? It's terrible when your sin is evident, isn't it? And then Saul had to, uh, blah, 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 had to stutter out, well, he didn't kill all of them like he's supposed to. Thus, sinners think that by justifying themselves, they can escape being judged by the Lord, because that's what Saul did. Oh, I kept the animals for sacrifice. I disobeyed God so that I could do something good. Two wrongs never make a right. Uh, that is not the way that, uh, and that's that's where that, Great memorable phrase Samuel makes to obey is better than sacrifice. Uh, and, and Saul was making excuses, trying to make himself kind of like saying, I, I know that we're not supposed to gamble, but I gamble so that I can have a bigger tithe check because I love the Lord. Um, it's never wrong, right to do wrong to do right. Okay. Conformity to God's commands, according to this chapter, are always preferred over ceremonial observances. This is so important. Obedience is better than sacrifice. By the way, it's much easier to bring a lamb, slit its neck, throw it on an uh, altar, and sacrifice it to the Lord than it is to bring every thought in obedient, into obedience to the Lord, to actually live right and be right. In other words, it's much easier to do right than it is to be right. That's why religions are so successful. They're, they're worth nothing. The greatest tool Satan has in this world is religion. Religion leads more people to hell than sin ever did. And so uh, that's what religion is all about. Do, 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 do. Have all these rules. I'm raised Amish. That's all we were about is rules. Every kind of rule you can imagine. And they're all about doing. It's a lot easier to do than it is to be. And he's all about us being the right person. So God is more glorified by obedience than sacrifice. So now this brings us to 1 Samuel 15. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he's turned back from following me. Here again, God repented. Why? It was not that he made a mistake. It was not that he had done wrong. God res repented in response to human action. He repented because Saul had done wrong. Saul had changed direction and started following evil, following himself, and abandoning God's way. So again, we need to examine our lives. I want you to ask yourself that question tonight. Am I doing anything in my life causing God to repent? He's When he promises to bless, do we get in the way of that blessing? He, he promises, my God, the Bible says, shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. People love to claim that verse. That is not for anybody to claim. That is specifically given to people who are faithful in giving. It was given to people who gave sacrificially to the church. They gave when they couldn't afford to give, and they still gave. And God, he said, hey, you are doing that, and so God will supply all your needs. And uh, he, he makes great promises, but 
when we stop doing what we're supposed to be doing on these conditional promises God makes, then he has to withdraw that blessing. And uh, are, are we quick to repent when we need to repent of our sin? Or do we make God have to change uh, his direction? Because God's plans are always perfect. When he repents of his plans, it is always, always our fault. It is only when we're thrown in the mix that these things change. So repentance in God is not a change of mind, as I mentioned. It's a change of method. His change in Saul was that he has turned back from following me. So my challenge to you tonight is simple. Um, what are, as we examine our lives, what are we doing that gets in the way of God doing what he wants to do? Man, God wants to save your neighbor. God wants to save your marriage. God wants your children to turn out right. God wants you to be blessed. He brings, he said, I'm not come. Uh, he said, I come that you can have life and have more abundantly. He wants you to have that abundant life. I'm not talking prosperity gospel garbage. I'm just saying God wants to bless. He has thoughts. I know my thoughts towards you, thoughts of good, not evil. So what's the problem? We get in the way. And uh, a lot of times God has to withhold blessing. Years ago, I remember hearing an illustration from a preacher about a man who got to heaven and uh, they showed him a room of all the things that he had wanted in life and uh, all the blessings that were available. This was a dream he had. All the blessings that he uh, could have had, but he didn't because of the choices he made in life. I'm just asking, what are we doing to get in our own? We are our own worst enemy when it comes to God blessing us and giving us those things that we desire. So uh, let's not get in our own way. Let's not be like Saul. And uh, let's be, it's, it, I hate to even think it, be like Assyria, like a Nineveh, in this specific instance. You get you right, and then you watch God respond. What a blessing that is. Thank you, Father, for the passage. I hope, I hope that it was somewhat clear, uh, the point we're trying to make here tonight. And I pray that you would help us to realize how detrimental it is to us when we make wrong choices. Lord, help us to seek you in all that we do. <coughs> help us to keep short accounts, Lord. And help us not to defer your plans for our lives by our actions. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.